Um, and so let me start off, first of all, by saying e uh, a little about each of these three things um, as they affect the taxation of earnings. Um, so first of all, how the world has changed um, from the point of view of taxing earnings. Well, the population looks very different, and we've got more single-person households uh, and more single-parent households than we had uh, when the Mead report happened 30 years ago. Um, there are more women in work. Um, women having fewer children and having them later is one factor behind that. There's also a higher proportion of uh, mothers in work and using uh, other using external childcare than there were. At the same time, there are fewer men in work, um, especially uh, at older ages, uh, where we've seen uh, increasing tendency for uh, the low-educated, low-skilled end of the uh, uh, spectrum to, to drop out of the labour market, and particularly onto disability benefits. Also, at the um, other end uh, of the spectrum, high, the, the highest earners uh, moving towards more uh, use of early retirement, retiring early on, on relatively generous pensions. Uh, although that, that's a trend that's reversed somewhat in the last few years. One manifestation of having more women in work and fewer men in work is that we've seen a polarisation of couples away from the, um, the, the, the old classical one-earner couple towards having more no-earner couples and more two-earner couples. We now have fewer 16 to 21 year olds in work as people are staying in education longer. Um, amongst those who are in work, the distribution of wages has become more unequal um, and the labour market has become more fluid in uh, various respects. Now, partly driving these changes and partly driven by them, we've seen some quite significant shifts in how earnings are taxed. Um, the basic rate of income tax has fallen from 33% to 20%. The top rate has fallen from 83% to 40%, uh, soon to, to um, go up to 50%. Counteracting that, tax thresholds haven't kept pace with growth in earnings, so we've seen an increase in the number of taxpayers uh, and actually a much bigger increase, a, a five-fold increase in the number of higher-rate taxpayers. The treatment of the family has been transformed and moved from uh, a system of largely joint taxation to independent taxation in 1990. Um, since then, we've seen um, the gradual abolition, more or less, of the married couples allowance and a bit that's often... Uh, forgotten about the additional personal allowance which provided equivalent support for unmarried people with children. One thing that I'm going to keep coming back to though is that the taxation of earnings is about much more than income tax. Um, at the simplest level we have nowadays more or less a second income tax in the form of national insurance uh, has become ever more like income tax. Um, but also it's important to remember that there's an implicit tax uh, on earnings uh, at the lower end of the spectrum through the withdrawal of benefits um, and tax credits uh, through means testing. And there we've seen a major development into the current government, the introduction of tax credits. And in some ways that's actually, again, counteracted some of the headline trends that I was just mentioning. Um, the expansion of means testing further up the income distribution means that, again, the effective tax rates that people have been facing um, 
uh, have, have gone up somewhat, counteracting again the reductions in statutory income tax rates. The fact that means testing tends to be done on couples, in fact is always done on couples um, joint income, is again counteracting the trend in income tax from joint to independent taxation. And in terms of the treatment of the family, um, tax credits have seen a major increase in the level of support for children, um, particularly for low-income families with children. Um, so that's how the world's changed and how policy's changed in um, pretty broad brush uh, terms. The third thing I mentioned is how our understanding has changed. Um, I'll resist the temptation to take you on a tour through developments in economic theory. Um, instead, just say a bit about um, our understanding of how people respond to tax changes. Um, it's perhaps only, only a slight caricature to say that 30 years ago, and indeed for much of the 80s, um, the debate was characterised by uh, fierce disagreement on the elasticity of labour supply. Um, I think since then our understanding has become somewhat more nuanced and a lot of those disputes seem actually to have been driven by people measuring slightly different things. Um, as we currently understand it, I think we would say that the number of hours people work in a job doesn't seem to respond much to how heavily they're taxed. However, for some groups, whether they take a job at all does seem to be quite responsive. Um, that's true primarily for single mothers and for women with um, working partners. Um, it's true more for um, the low-skilled, low-educated groups and amongst mothers um, whose children are school age rather than those who have very young children at home. Um, employment still seems to, also seems to be responsive, as I was mentioning, around kind of further and higher education ages and around retirement age. I think we've also nowadays got an increased understanding that how people respond to tax changes, their taxable income, uh, changes in ways that aren't just about um, whether they take a job and how many hours they work. And it certainly seems to be true at the top of the income distribution. It may also be true um, for other groups, but actually that's an area where um, less is understood and, uh, and, and research is still um, ongoing and very much needed, and how um, these various other aspects of behaviour that will all affect how much income the government has available to it to tax um, respond to tax rates. Um, so, let me now... Um, Take you um, talk, talk a, a, a bit about a few particular um, live issues in the taxation of earnings and really have a look at how the various things I've been talking about um, feed into those debates. Uh, start at the top with um, top tax rates. Um, the old um, Laffer curve argument tells us that at some point, um, as tax rates get higher, people reduce their incomes more and more until um, eventually um, increasing tax rates stops raising you money and starts costing you money instead. Um, the question is, at what point that does that happen? Um, in other words, how much do people respond to these top tax rates? Um, well, one study that was um, done for the Murleys Review looked at um, the um, very highest earners, the, the top 1%, um, coincidentally, the same group are about to be affected by the new 
um, 50p income tax rate um, and looked at how responsive they were, or how, how much their income seemed to respond to the last um, set of changes we had to top tax rates, um, which was, were, were those falls in statutory rates I was talking about during the 1980s. Um, their best estimate, looking at how top, top incomes responded from that, suggested that the income tax rate for this group that would maximise revenue was actually around 40%. Um, now bear in mind that that amounts to an overall tax rate of uh, more like 56%, because once again we can't just think about income. What matters for um, incentives is the overall wedge between how much it costs to employ someone and what they can um, buy with their earnings, which uh, is also a matter of employer national insurance contributions, indirect taxes and so on. Um, however, um, this estimate was hugely uncertain. Um, the authors thought there was uh, about a two-thirds chance that the revenue maximising rate was somewhere between 33% and 57%, give you an idea of quite how uncertain that was, and that's even assuming uh, that that's even if all the assumptions they had to make to do this estimate um, turned out to be right. And they make no bones about the fact that theirs was a, a naive and tentative um, estimate. And that was even for the 1980s. Um, things may have changed since I mentioned um, various ways in which the labour markets become more fluid. Um, arguably, top incomes may be harder to, uh, to, to pin down. Um, on the other hand, the government might argue that they have taken steps um, to make tax avoidance more difficult. Um, they restricted, for example, the extent to which people can um, move, money in, move money into pension funds um, in order to avoid the 50p rate uh, when it comes in. So really, it might be fair to say that we don't really know what the revenue maximising tax rate um, is. Um, Unfortunately for them, governments don't have that luxury. Essentially, they've got to take um, a best guess. Uh, and it was really in that spirit that this estimate was um, produced. Um, but of course, when governments are making policy, it's not necessarily just a question of setting the tax rate to raise as much revenue as possible. Um, if the government puts any value at all on the extra a benefit that these well-off people um, get from having their extra income, then the revenue maximising tax rate is going to be too high. Um, on the other hand, if you think that reducing inequality is so important for its own sake that it's worth making the rich worse off, even if it doesn't raise you any uh, money to put to other causes, then you might even want tax rates to be above their revenue maximising level. Um, it rather makes you wonder whether um, the government's view in introducing the 50% rate was driven mainly by uh, a changed view of how much revenue it would bring in or by a different um, view of how nice or nasty we wanted to be to rich people. Um, and we turn to look at the other end of the spectrum because, of course, the highest um, effective tax rates on earnings aren't caused by high income tax rates uh, on the rich. They're caused by the withdrawal of benefits and tax credits at low incomes. Um, and perhaps in particular by the simultaneous withdrawal of several different benefits of tax credits, perhaps combined with income tax and national insurance uh, as well. And the same study for the Murley's review suggested um, a few ways in which um, these very highest effective tax rates 
uh, could be reduced. Um, and they're suggesting included um, increasing the level of working tax credits um, and withdrawing um, support um, more gradually as income increases. Uh, and these suggestions highlight some of the um, delicate trade-offs that policymakers face. Um, increasing working tax credit, for example, clearly provides an incentive for someone to be in work so that you can get the tax credit. Um, but because it's then means-tested, um, it reduces the incentive for that person in work then to increase their earnings uh, further because they would then lose the tax credit. Um, so we have a trade-off there between the incentive for someone to be in work and the incentive for someone in work to increase their earnings. When we bear in mind that means testing is done on the joint income of couples, um, we can also think that this is in fact an incentive for family to have someone in work, but a disincentive for the family to increase their earnings, including by, by a second earner moving into work. And so again, we see a second trade-off, incentivizing families to have a first earner in work, uh, but reducing the incentive for them to have a second earner in work. Means testing less aggressively um, may mean that those people who face means tests face uh, lower effective tax rates, um, face losing less benefit if they increase their income for a bit. But of course, by spreading means testing further up the distribution, that means that more people are facing these things. And so we've got a third trade-off between how, quite how bad these incentives are and how many people face um, the weak incentives. And, of course, spreading means testing um, to more people uh, isn't just a matter of work incentives. Um, means testing causes various other problems for hassle and stigma for claimants, administrative problems for government, non-take-up, and so on. Um, even if um, you consider the first three trade-offs I've talked about and decide that uh, suggestions uh, of this type, on balance, uh, have adva advantages that outweigh the disadvantages, um, we then have to um, weigh up the uh, net overall improvement in incentives and distribution against the practical problems that may arise. Uh, and this trade-off between what may um, be theoretically optimal uh, and practical considerations is one that recurs um, in a lot of places. Um, but you can see, um, looking at these different trade-offs, how the various... Um, changes and aspects and knowledge that I was talking about earlier on are going to feed into this in terms of the polarisation of the labour force into no-earner and two-earner um, couples, the increased um, number of lone parents, um, evidence on how responsive people are in terms of whether they take a job compared with how responsive they are in increasing their earnings. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll uh, skip over this. Uh, let me move on to looking at some cases where um, perhaps the trade-offs don't look quite so difficult and delicate. Um, this is what the income tax schedule for people aged 65 and over is due to look like from next April. Um, it's a remarkable looking thing. Um, the tax rate goes from 0 to 20 to 30 to 20 to 40 to 60, back down to 40, and then up to 50 again. Um, the first thing um, you think is that this looks pretty odd, 
Um, the second thing this raises, at least for me, is to wonder how many people actually realise um, that this is the tax schedule um, being imposed. Um, I hesitate to ask how many people even within the Treasury are consciously aware that this is what they're doing. Um, the reason that um, the two spikes at around just over 20,000 and just over 100,000 pounds um, arise um, is because of the tapering away of personal allowances. Um, so pensioners um, have for a long time got a higher personal allowance, but that's uh, gradual, the extra they get is gradually withdrawn above incomes of uh, £20,000 or so. Um, the second spike on the right-hand side was uh, announced at the same time as the 45% well, the, the and 50% um, tax rates. Uh, is the withdrawal of the rest of the personal allowance, the, the, this main personal allowance, um, being reduced uh, on incomes above £100,000, uh, and which will, of course, apply to the, to the uh, whole population, not just to those aged 65 or over. Um, it seems to me if, if, um, if the government wants to argue that it, it's right and optimal for the income tax schedule to look like this... Um, Good luck to them. Um, but it seems to me a fairly powerful case for saying that this should at least require some justification. At the moment, it doesn't really even get debated because the way it's described through this obscure mechanism of tapering away personal allowances rather hides the fact that this is the schedule being imposed. And it seems to me that transparency is uh, a pretty essential uh, starting point. Once you have transparency, um, it then becomes rather easier to argue over the merits of the design of a particular system. Um, I would argue that those spikes in the tax rate schedule look pretty um, hard to defend. Um, of course, that schedule itself was something of a simplification. Um, for one thing, uh, it ignored the 10p tax rate. 10p tax rate was not, in fact, abolished in 2008. Uh, it still exists, but it exists only for savings income, and only where that savings income, when counted as the top slice of income except for dividends and capital gains, falls within the first £2,440 of income above the personal allowance. Um, again, I, I, I look forward to hearing quite why that's a sensible design for a tax system. Um, I'd perhaps better not get started on the... Uh, tapered restriction of tax relief on pension contributions um, or I might not uh, finish. <laughs> All of this is um, just on income tax. Uh, a similar case could be made for simplification when we start thinking about the relationship between income tax and national insurance. Um, when national insurance was introduced uh, in 1911 and even the scheme um, beverage envisaged uh, in, 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 uh, well, that was kind of introduced in 1948, um, you could make a case that national insurance was a um, proper social insurance um, scheme, uh, notwithstanding arguments about its being pay-as-you-go and so on that uh, Ian was mentioning earlier. Uh, nowadays, I think that argument is extremely difficult to maintain. Um, the link between contributions and benefits is... Uh, vanishingly weak um, and the mechanics of national insurance 
look ever more like income tax. Uh, there is a reasonable case to be made for having a proper social insurance uh, system, and if the government wanted to introduce one, then great. But while we don't have one, uh, there seems to be a pretty strong case for integrating uh, national insurance with income tax completely, uh, following on from the process of gradual alignment that we've um, seen now over several decades. Uh, that wouldn't just reduce the administrative costs to government and compliance costs to empl employers and so forth from having uh, separate schemes. It would also, again, make the overall effect more transparent. Um, and those areas, for example, those forms of income that are subject to income tax but not national insurance or vice versa, um, if they were e explicitly subject to a reduced rate of tax, perhaps more conducive to a debate over whether these things actually ought to be taxed or not, or whether a reduced rate is right. Um, so just briefly um, sum up, tax reform happens um, in a context, and the context in which it happens um, is an important, uh, has to be an important part of the um, debate. A lot has changed in the context um, over the last 30 years, um, and I think we can use a lot of what, what, what we've learned from that um, in judging some of the difficult trade-offs that policymakers have to face. Um, having said that, I think there are also um, some areas where perhaps fairness, efficiency and simplicity might all point uh, in the same direction and clear improvements are available.